Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we look at books in physics, both popular and scholarly. Coming up, I'll be chatting with David McDade, who is head of eBooks at IOP Publishing. We talk about 10 years of scholarly book publishing at the company and about the role that books play in how scientific knowledge is communicated today and in the future. But first, the astrophysicist, folklorist, and science communicator Moya McTeer is in conversation with Physics World's Mateen Durrani about her new book, The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy. So here at Physics World, we get to see loads of popular science books that uh, try to put science across um, as simply as possible. But sometimes we see a book that just looks so neat and such a clever idea that we have to have it reviewed. And so I'm delighted to be joined by Moya McTeer, an an astrophysicist in New York, whose first book is called The Milky Way, an Autobiography of Our Galaxy, which kind of talks about the science of the Milky Way from the point of view of the Milky Way itself, which is such a brilliant idea. So hi, Moya. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for calling my idea brilliant. I love when that happens. Is that what I said? Well, I think it was, you know, so we, we're always quite selective about the books we review and this one just seemed we had to do it. So t- tell us, where did you get the idea of writing a book from the point of view of the Milky Way itself, which is such a great idea. I think it's fantastic. I'm really envious that I never thought of that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Yeah, there were, I think, two origins for this idea. The first was that I had just read a a fiction book called The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie. And that book is written from the perspective of a rock, uh, a sentient rock that just happens to be a a godly figure in that world. And so I was kind of already in the mindset of writing things from weird perspectives. And then uh, I thought about writing this popular science book some more and realized that so many popular science books have already been written about space by really cool people with interesting perspectives. And I could add my own voice to that. Like I do have a unique point of view, but it would be so much more novel to write something from the point of view of the Milky Way. Um, and so I tested it out at like a, an open mic comic type thing. Uh, and the audience didn't completely boo me off the stage when I said I wanted to write a book from the Milky Way's POV. And so I told my agent about it. And then the rest is history. Brilliant. So, I mean, um, it's a great idea. So how did you go about writing it? And and did you ever sort of doubt that this was not going to work out? I mean, it did. So obviously (laughs) um, it was successful in the end. But how did did you go about writing it? And um, what was the path of the writing? Was it smooth? Was it easy? Mm. I, I did doubt it at the very beginning um, when I was talking to that that room at the open mic, when I was talking to my agent and my editor. I did have a lot of doubts at first. But once everyone signed on, I was completely committed. And I was like, this is the bit. This is the conceit. Let's run with it. Um, and everyone around me was, was really supportive of that. Uh, but I did know that people that some people wouldn't like the tone of the Milky Way. Uh, so to answer how did I go about writing it, the most important thing we had to do up top was figure out what the voice of the Milky Way was going to be. And so I spent a, a lot of time 
writing the that first chapter in a few different voices. I tested them out with my editor and we landed on this very sassy kind of like larger than life, holier than thou, a little bit condescending voice. And once I found it, it was really easy to just keep that going. Um, and practically how I wrote it, I used a lot of Pomodoros, um, which is this technique where you work for 25 minutes and then five minutes off. Um, I also had a writing fort uh, that I used to get myself like in the mindset because the the Milky Way is a is a pretty isolated galaxy. And so to get into its perspective, I had to forget that I was around other people and other living things. So I would literally write under a blanket, like with a blanket over my head. Uh, and I called that my writing fort. And that's where this book was oh, wow. made. So you literally have a sort of blanket of your head just to sort of get yeah. rid of all the external influences and noise and so on, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> a blanket over my head and uh, brown noise in my ears. Wow. And your laptop. Yes, of course. <laughs> I have really bad posture because of this. <laughs> and uh, what, what was the hardest bit about writing it? I mean, did you um, – because you have a lot of uh, um, resources and um, uh, proper research articles that you've turned to was it ever hard to sort of convert the science into that perspective of a of point of view of the, of the of the galaxy that must have been quite tricky sometimes I think that part was easy uh, I mean I got a PhD in the Milky Way and so I didn't have to actually do much research for this book but the hardest thing was striking this balance between me, uh, a human who does not know everything, writing this book from the perspective of a galaxy that supposedly does know everything. And so I had to come up with this little trick that the Milky Way was only going to talk about things that humans had already discovered. Um, and, and writing that line was really difficult because um, I wanted to at least hint at the fact that there's more to learn, that there's more to know. Um, and I, I think I did it okay. But, um, you know, maybe if I were writing this book now, I'm older, wiser, um, I would have done that a little bit better. Right. And um, next question was kind of what has been the reaction to it? I mean, Physics World reviewed it. I think our reviewer really, really liked it. What's What's been the um, overall sort of view of, of the book? Yeah, it's done really well. I It's done better than I expected it to. Every like real um, reviewing agency has really liked it. Uh, Barnes & Noble loved it. Kirkus liked it. Publishers Weekly liked it. Physics World really liked it. And so I was excited to see all of that. Uh, some of the, the readers didn't respond well to the tone, which is fine because I knew that was going to happen. And so the like Amazon reviews or whatever are kind of mixed. But honestly, none of that matters to me as much as the messages that I've been getting from readers. Um, this one woman told me that she read the book to her father in hospice and that when she was reading it to him, it was the most engaged she had seen him in his last months of life. And mm -hmm. getting that message meant more to me than being on any list on any like big company's review, because ultimately I'm writing this book for people, like to make a connection with people and to help people uh, expand their perspective and their worldview. And so I, I did that. So it is a success in my eyes. Right. Excellent. Well, wow, what a story. Um, and I've been looking at your website, Moya. You know, you, your story of how you got into science is quite different, let's say. Um, <laughs> you grew up in some of, where was it? It was quite rural with sort of no, no yeah. TV, you said. Which uh... Uh, Yeah. Um, so I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in, the, in a log cabin in the woods, no TV, no heat, no running water. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
but then of course you went off to study at college and university. So you've, you said you got four different degrees. Uh, where, where did you study? I did my undergrad at Harvard, where I studied both astrophysics and folklore and mythology. I was the first person to ever do so, uh, to double major in those two things. And then I went to Columbia to get my PhD in astrophysics. And along the way, they gave me like two bonus master's degrees. (laughs) Uh, So I have one bachelor's from Harvard and three uh, degrees from Columbia. So what are you up to the moment? You're doing, um, you say you're a science communicator. Are you doing any sort of um, real research, so to speak? (laughs) Real research. I have left the world of research academia for full-time science communication. And uh, so everything that I do is to advance my mission of helping people understand the world around us better through science and facts. Um, I host podcasts. I host a YouTube show for PBS that's about world mythology because my my definition of science also includes my folklore work. Um, and I, I do a lot of speaking about science, which, which I really enjoy. Um, but I am working on book number two. I have started working on the proposal and my agent and I are preparing to send it out to my editor in a couple of weeks, which is very exciting. Any uh, sneak preview? What's it about? Yes, I think this one will be uh, a little bit of a, of a deviation from the first book, but I have been thinking of this this second book as my most Moya project. Um, I told my friends about it and they're like, that's the most Moya thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's more of a history of science book, but but it also covers um, softer sciences like religion and democracy. And so it's a history of innovation, really, but all told from the perspective, uh, you might sense a theme, uh, Mm -hmm. told from the perspective of the Greek muses as they are going around inspiring humanity to um, become more independent from the Greek gods. Wow. And have you got a publisher for that? When, when's that going to be released? Well, I'm just in the proposal writing stage now. And so we'll send it to the editor at the the company that published the Milky Way. Uh, they have right of first refusal for whatever I do. And hopefully they'll like it. Um, I really loved working with my editor. She was fantastic. And my entire team at Grand Central Publishing was so amazing. Um, they were all women. Uh, so my, my editor, my publicist, and um, my like PR marketing person. They were all women. And so I'm really excited to work with them again. Brilliant. So anyone who's listening, any tips for how to write a good book? What would you, what would your advice be having done one already and a second in the pipeline? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Writing a book is slow and difficult. So make sure that you pick a topic that you can think about for, uh, that you can think about nonstop for years at a time. Um, Also pick a, a topic and and a voice that is unique to you. Um, when when someone picks up this book and they leaf through it without looking at the author picture in the back, it's really awesome if they can tell that this is a project from you. Um, so try and do that as much as possible. Would you ever advise writing a book with someone else, or would you would you rather always do it on your own because your voice is hundred percent Moya, as you put it? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, I grew up an only child, so I don't know if I'm good enough at sharing to collaborate with someone else on a book. But I, I do think that it's extremely possible. Um, it's just it comes with a different set of, of issues um, and, and obstacles than writing a book on your own. And I think that even when you're writing with someone else, you can find uh, a really beautiful, unique combination of your voices like that. My advice from before doesn't um, preclude writing something with someone else. 
All right. Well, we look forward to that second book. So thanks very much, Moya, and um, best of luck in the rest of your career. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for your beautiful review. That was Moya McTeer in conversation with Mateen Durrani. Moya's book has been reviewed by Kate Cullen in Physics World. You can read the review on our website. Just look for the headline, If the Milky Way Could Talk, What Would It Say? Back in 2013, Institute of Physics Publishing, which brings you Physics World, launched a new books program. The first two titles were Semiconductors, Bonds and Bands by David Ferry and Renewables, a review of sustainable energy supply options by David Elliott. In the decades since, IOPP has produced 800 books across 17 subject areas. These titles were published, written, and contributed by more than 1,500 authors from all around the world. To talk about the success of IOPP's books program and to look forward to the future, I'm joined by David McDade, who's head of ebooks at IOP Publishing. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. So, David, we heard uh, we, we heard the first two titles of uh, of IOP's books, and uh, you can see already there that uh, it, it's a pretty widespread <laughs> a subject. Everything from uh, semiconductors to uh, sustainable energy. So, c- can you describe IOP Publishing's book catalog? What are, are you and your colleagues looking for when you commission new titles? So, as you know, IOP is a um, an academic and scholarly publisher, and our books reflect that fact. So, in other words, we're, we're publishing predominantly for a university-level audience, and we are seeking to cater to the needs of the people who work within that environment. So, very broadly, in terms of the types of books we have, we have two main categories. We have research-level titles that provide kind of a digested overview of a given topic. They're designed to provide an entry point into the more detailed primary literature, which of course can be hugely extensive depending on the the field of study. And then the other type of book that we publish is what we describe as course text, the the textbooks. um, They're designed to support learning on advanced undergrad or graduate level courses. Um, So across the whole piece, We're catering to researchers, teaching staff, and upper-level students at universities. And, of course, there aren't always hard boundaries between those groups, so in many cases the same book might be useful for uh, all of them. Now, in terms of what we're looking for uh, when we are commissioning new titles, well, there are multiple aspects that, that we look at. Things I would call out are the subject matter. Obviously, it has to be a good fit for our program because... IOPP, as the publishing arm of the Institute of Physics, obviously has a fairly well-defined set of discipline interests, and we need to be confident that the readership that the author is trying to address is one that we can reach effectively. And in other words, that's the university-level audience that I mentioned a second ago. But we have to be honest with our authors about where our strengths lie, 
For example, if they are seeking to publish what they believe to be a mass market popular science book, then IOP publishing may not be the best fit for them. And we, we need to be upfront about that. When we're looking at a new book proposal, some degree of novelty is obviously pre preferred. You know, is this a book that fills a gap in the literature? Doesn't matter if it's a niche gap because that comes with the territory and this type of specialist scientific publishing. But if we get feedback on a, on a book proposal that says, yeah, this looks great because there's been a, a ton of research in this area in the last couple of years, but nobody has gathered it all together in a book yet, then we know we're in a sweet spot for that kind of research level title. And then similarly, if a prospective author comes to us and says, I've developed this new course in my university, it's on a subject that's increasingly being taught in other institutions, um, say a, a graduate level course, um, and I have a great idea for a textbook that's gonna support those courses then that's also very promising for us because, again, it's probably going to meet um, a currently unfulfilled need. So that's what you're looking out for, Dave. What, what, in your discussions with authors, what, what do you find that they want from a book's publisher? Mm. Well, obviously, different authors are looking for different things, but I think you know, we can generalize a little bit from, from experience. Authors want to essentially communicate their ideas, share their knowledge, and rightly, they see the publisher as being the conduit for that transmission of, of information. So the author needs to be confident that the publisher can, can reach their audience as effectively as possible, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the, the sales model of the publisher may be relevant to that. For example, um, textbook authors are naturally very keen to ensure that their books get into the hands of students taking courses related to that book. In the first instance, they're very keen that their own students get access to those books because that's who they've written it for in the first instance, but they're keen that students everywhere um, use, use their book. Um, they know, like we do, that it can be difficult to persuade students to part with their own cash to buy textbooks. Um, in IOP's case, um, we are selling digital collections to libraries, and once an institution has purchased that book, then it's available to all users of of that library without any any limitation on concurrent use and so on. So that's something that authors really like the idea of, that those books are free at the point of access for the reader once the institution has purchased it. And beyond, I suppose, finding the right authors and, and, and the right books, what, what are some of the biggest challenges in scholarly book publishing? Or maybe it is finding the right authors. Well, that's right always, always a constant challenge, yes, and something that you know the team's working on every day. Um, I think to go to a bit more of a general or philosophical level, I think um, it's a challenge for us to make sure that people understand the value of book content in the scholarly ecosystem. Um, that's something we grapple with quite a lot. The demise of the scholarly book is something that's been predicted for several decades now because you know, there are so many other competing sources of information out there, often free since the advent of, of the web, of course. And yet here we are in 2023, hundreds of authors want to write books for us. And those books are downloaded hundreds of thousands of times per year. And that's just a medium-sized academic publisher like IOPP. So my feeling is very much that the book persists as a unit of information that people seem to like and find value in, both as authors and as readers. And I think 
that in scientific publishing particularly, where the volume of primary research articles continues to snowball year on year, I think books can really retain um, their purpose as helping to find the signal in the noise of that huge body of research. And, and David, you, you touched on this idea of, of people liking free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's a result of the internet. What are your thoughts on open access book publishing? That's where readers can access books free of charge, and often the authors pay a fee to publish. What, what are your thoughts on that model? Mm. Well, it's not something that IOP offers right now. I mentioned our sales model earlier, and that provides a good deal of access uh, to to students and uh, and other readers in universities, but the the university is paying us to get that access. So we're not currently offering an open access book option, but we're very attuned to what's going on across the industry in this respect. It's fair to say that the landscape for open access books is much less evolved than it than that model is in the journal world, certainly with regard to scientific disciplines. It's a different story in the social sciences, humanities, arts areas. In those fields, the book is often the main format for publishing primary research. So um, those books are much more often in the scope of the policies of funders who want to you know, mandate um, open access publishing. So it's been informative for us to observe the changes and the initiatives that those types of publishers have been developing and we're learning a lot from them. I think it's a no-brainer that you know everyone can agree that open science and free access to information is a good thing for the world. On the other hand, as we've seen in journal publishing during the last decade or two, making that transition financially sustainable for publishers is not a trivial task. And we're still, we're more at the beginning of that process um, in, in books publishing. But it, open access is an option that our book authors are likely to be looking for increasingly frequently in the years to come. So we are regularly thinking about the options that could work best for our program and for the communities that we work with. And, and so from your point of view, looking towards the future, what are you most excited about when it comes to book publishing at Institute of Physics Publishing? Well, there are lots of things. I'm, I'm excited just to see this book program continue to build in its size and in its stature. We recently published our 800th book, and that is really good progress considering, as you mentioned in your intro, that the, the program only started 10 years ago now. That does sound like quite a long time, but the lead time for developing a book from concept to publication is, is quite long. Um, and so when you're starting a brand new program from scratch, you're not really gonna publish anything for the first couple of years. And you have to establish yourself as you know, a reputable book publisher in the minds of the authors that you're going for, even though you don't have you know, an existing program to, to point to as evidence. So it's really taken a lot of work and tenacity from the team to gradually build the program to where we are now, which is, I think, a physical sciences book publisher with a really strong reputation uh, with authors and with other societies. So I'm excited to consolidate that position continue to build our list with even more great authors and and to keep publishing these really useful and, and popular books. Um, the chance to innovate in what we do is, is also an exciting prospect. Our books do appear in print because that's important to our authors and, and to some of our customers, but at heart we are a digital book publisher. We were 
set up that way from the ground up. And that's enabled us to have certain advantages over um, longer standing kind of legacy book publishers. You know, it's enabled us to have really efficient workflows, short production times, really good data standards, which is obviously important in the ebook world. And um, being designed digital from the ground up has also enabled us to add some really nice interactive features on some of our books. And we'd like to do more of that. But with books, there's always a question around how far you can innovate and stretch the definition of what a book is in the digital space before people decide, oh, well, that's not really a book anymore and maybe lose interest, you know, especially if you're an author who's seeking to write a book. Um, they want to know that it, it will end up as a book on their shelf, for example. Um, and as I said before, the book as a container of knowledge has this persistent appeal for authors and readers. So how we innovate within that constraint is an interesting challenge. And David, some of our listeners might be interested in a career in scientific publishing and who knows, even a career in scientific books publishing. Do you have any tips for um, you know, how, how to get in, how to, how to start if you're interested in, in that sort of career? Well, anyone who's interested in a career in scientific publishing, I would say definitely go for it because it's a chance to work with really interesting and committed people, both internally and externally as well. That latter point is, is really important, working with author communities and you know, some very um, talented people. Scientific publishing is in an extended period of upheaval these days because of the, the long-term disruption that's been caused by um, technological developments in the world. And so I think there are really great opportunities for new people to come in and contribute to the thinking about how we meet those challenges, how we do things differently. I'd also say if you're interested in scientific publishing, go for it whether you have a science-based education or not. There are really important roles in this industry that require a scientific background for good reason, but there are many that don't. And it's always been a privilege for me as a humanities graduate um, to work with scientists throughout my career, to learn a little bit about what they do um, and to contribute to the dissemination of their ideas. So if you're not a scientist yourself, but you're interested in science, publishing can be a really great career for you. Another thing I'd say is don't get too hung up about which role you take in the first instance, because um, especially in early career, it's really common for people to move around within publishing companies, say between editorial and production roles or marketing or more technology or operationally focused roles. So I would say just get your foot in the door first, look around, talk to people, learn uh, and get a feel for what appeals to you. And ultimately, as with many careers, I guess, but you need to be a strong communicator. You need to be able to work well with other people. And it helps have a little business sense as well. Um, and the payoff is that you can be part of producing something of lasting value that's going to help educate the next generation of scientists and maybe even help to advance scientific progress just a tiny bit and what could be more rewarding than that? <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, David. I mean, your point about um, 
a, a period of upheaval, you know, because I, I started at IOP Publishing in 1997. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the changes that I've seen in publishing have been, you know, actually rather dramatic. You know, ideas, new ideas appear and then they disappear and new ideas come. So it's, 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 it's by no means a static thing, is it? Things just keep changing and there's always a need for new ideas, new ways of doing things. So, yeah, it definitely is exciting. Ne never a dull moment. Well, thanks, David. Thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about uh, books. And um, best of luck uh, for the future for you and your team. Thanks, Hamish, and I appreciate you having me on. You can browse IOP Publishing's book catalog on the IOP Science website. This week, Physics World hosted the last in a series of five webinars focusing on women in medical physics. The webinars, supported by ViewRay, specifically highlight women physicists across the globe who are using ViewRay's Meridian, which is an MRI-guided radiation therapy system to transform cancer care. You can find all of those presentations on the webinars page of the Physics World website. Just scroll down to the Available to Watch Now section. Also new on the website is a review of the book The Sky is for Everyone, Women Astronomers in Their Own Words, which was edited by Virginia Trimble and David Weintraub. The reviewer, Carol Green describes the book as being a great information resource and a valuable archive of the lived experiences of female astronomers. She also writes, theirs are stories that are desperately important but are rarely recorded in the detail that they should be. You can read the review on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Journey to the Stars, The Personal Stories of Women in Astronomy. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Moya McTeer, David McDade, and Mateen Durrani for joining me. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. The podcast will return again next week when I'll be exploring the remarkable life of Freeman Dyson with the physicist and historian David Kaiser. David has edited a new book about the scientific rebel that is Dyson, and we'll be chatting about the book and Dyson's life in great detail. Physics World